Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to a brand new episode of Hi, Jinx, with me, Jinx Monsoon. Today, our guest is Wilson Cruz, who is a very sweet, longtime friend of mine. We met many, many years ago, and we just keep crossing paths. And today, we're going to talk about his wonderfully decorated career, his advocacy work, and an intimate moment we shared in a hotel lobby. That's right. It's happening today on Hi Jinx. Forever. Dog. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today, we are joined by actor, producer, and activist, Wilson Cruz. Hi, Wilson. Hi, Jinx. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm really well. How are you? It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you too. You look amazing. That is a wonderful shirt you're wearing. Oh, I'm going to I'm going to try to describe the scene to the listeners cuz they can't see what I'm seeing right now. But you have strategically set up your your <laughs> computer camera with um this stunning background. Is that New York City behind you? That's New York Citoyen. You have this amazing view of the New York City skyline um, at early evening. (laughs) And then through through the corridor of a beautifully decorated home. (laughs) And then you're wearing this gorgeous shirt and gold chain. You could not look more photogenic right now. It's all for you, boo. It's all for you. I even, I even, I'm even featuring this little pink rose, but I was like, that reminds me of Jinx. I'm going to make sure she sees it. <laughs> when when people think of little tight little pink roses, <laughs> people think of me. <laughs> oh, maybe I put it in here so that people would think of me. Then. <laughs> Wilson, it is so nice to have you on the podcast. You are a decorated actor um, with many roles. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a short list um, that people might know you from, um, starting with, of course, um, the role of Ricky Vasquez on My So Called Life, Angel in the Broadway tour production of Rent, Junito on Noah's Ark, Dr. Hugh Colbert. Oh, that one I got. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dr. Hugh Colbert on Star Trek Discovery. And you were also, of course, in the film Party Monster, uh, as my water cap um, bounces around. You were in the film Party Monster, which was an extremely formative film for me as a young person and when was one of my earliest inspirations for doing drag and um, Mm -hmm. you play a titular role in that um, also named Angel. Yeah it's kind of (laughs) a a running theme in my career I keep running into angels. (laughs) 
<laughs> I hope that's not foreshadowing. Or may, no, I hope it is foreshadowing. Maybe I, I just is. don't want you to die anytime soon is what I'm trying to say. I, ha- I have no plans. I have no plans. <laughs> you, um, you made history, Wilson Cruz, by playing um, the first openly gay character on a network show. And you were an openly gay actor at the time. That's huge. And I, I I don't know if everyone knows how huge it is, but it's a recurring thing we talk about um, on this podcast is that, you know, given where things are today in the conversation about um, sexual identity, gender identity and representation and being out and proud and open versus where it was when my so-called life was on TV, you know, to be an openly gay actor was, you know, first of of all, like unheard of. And second of all, like one of the hardest things you could do in the business and you did it not only um, at a very young age, but it was your first big role on network television. What was that that like? (laughs) Um, it was really intense. It's funny because I was just talking about this. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I was making a life choice, right? I was 19 years old. It was the gay 90s, right? Like people were coming out. Our, we, we had identified visibility as a tool, a political tool. And so people were in our community were being asked to come out so that people would see that we were part, we were already part of the world. Um, and we always have been, but um, so I was making a choice about my life, about how I wanted to live my life. I wasn't making a career choice, though mm. I did do it in hopes that I would build an army of people who would follow me. Um, and they came. It just came a little later than I expected, right? I think that yeah. I inspired a, a younger generation. And when they grew up, that's when I got to see them. Um, and so it was the best decision I've ever made. Uh, it's one of the best decisions ever made. I have to wonder, you know, I want to juxtapose <laughs> that and the impact that that had versus um, what I read was, you know, a tumultuous coming out experience for you in your personal life. Mm-hmm. And um, so when you came out to your family, it wasn't received well. My mom did the 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 very dramatic thing of like breaking down in tears and because she was worried about my, my health and my, my safety. And, you know, she like cried and then like, you know, as if a storm had passed, like a summer storm had passed. She like wiped her tears and she was like, I already knew. Right. So, um, but so this thought, is where you get it from. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, my mother is a definitely a frustrated performer. Um, she'll, she'll be the first to tell you. Uh, but my father, right, was a product of his, you know, religious and cultural upbringing in Puerto Rico. It was, you know, very much uh, uh, an example of machismo. Um, and we were strangers growing up, right? When I was growing up, we were strangers in the same house. Um, and his favorite question was, why don't you have a girlfriend? And I would always be like, oh, you know, I'm busy with school, busy, 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 trying to keep up my grades. And um and I finally came out to him because of my so-called life, because I knew I was going to come out publicly. Um, and I figured I should tell him before uh, I was on Phil Donahue, which, by the way, I was. Hey, kids, <laughs> it was a talk show. 
Um, <laughs> and, um, and it did not go well. He did throw me out of the house. And um, it was three months before we were supposed to start production on my so-called life. So I had three months to survive. And that's what I did. I survived for three months. And, you know, thank God for the Chevy blue hatchback that I owned and <laughs> um, the, the, the generosity of friends and people who let me sleep on their couches until we started production on the series. Wow. And, to and, then, and, and, and by the way, oh. I always forget this part. The best part of that story is that, you know, we didn't speak for a year. Um, and then, um, you know, Ricky Vasquez himself goes through a very similar experience on the series. And um, in the Christmas episode of My So-Called mm -hmm. Life, So-Called Angels, um, he gets thrown out of his house. And when the credits rolled, because back then you had to watch things live. Um, <laughs> uh, when the credits rolled, um, my phone rang and it was my dad. Um, after, and he hadn't spoken in a year. And he, after watching that episode said, it, I think it's time for us to talk. And so that show not only was the catalyst for my coming out and ownership of myself and my life, but also um, was the cause of my relationship with my father today. I would have never been able to teach him the things that that wow. opened him up in a way that, um, that I would have wouldn't have been capable of doing without it. And so that, I, you know, people come up to me almost daily and say, Ricky Vasquez has changed my life. And mm -hmm. I say to them, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> he changed mine. Like I have a relationship with my family that is based in truth, right? And vulnerability yeah. and authenticity because of it. So I have a lot to thank Ricky Vasquez for. Wow. That, that's such a lovely story. And it's... Um... It's, it, you know, following your career throughout my own life, it's just such a really cool full circle to know that story and, and, and see where you started. And then now you're playing um, a queer character on the queerest season of Star Trek yet, the queerest series of Star Trek. Um, sure. It's multiple seasons, but, you know, Star Trek fans out there will know that, you know, every time the show gets reinvented, it's a new cast of characters and it's the same universe. And um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a medium Star Trek fan myself. Like I've seen every episode of Voyager, most yes. of Deep Space Nine, most of um, Next Generation. But I have been an avid viewer of Discovery and, you know, to have to be old enough to remember the time where there was no queer representation on television. Or if there was, it was like, a, you know, a one line character that was just there for the joke of like a gay guy saying a sassy line, you know, right. or um, to to have seen like what you know, what being out and open um, did to careers back in the day and remembering, you know, when I knew I wanted to be an actor, remembering all the people telling me to keep my personal life private because it would, um, you know, make it impossible to have a career in theater or TV. And now we've got Star Trek, one of the biggest fran television franchises in America and possibly around the whole world and mm -hmm. its current iteration has um multiple queer characters 
and played by I think we have performers. I, yeah, <laughs> I think we have the queerest show cast on television. We definitely have the most diverse cast on TV mm-hmm. because our cast isn't just queer, it's also people of color. It's, you know, mm-hmm. heavy women uh, focused. So um, I'm very, very proud. And, you know, our, our showrunner, the woman who is in charge of our show, Michelle Paradise, is part of the queer community as well. So, you know, it's, um, it's really gay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and like you said, these characters are not only part of the community, but the people playing these characters are part of the community. And because of that, there's an authenticity to it. And we come to it with a real sense of responsibility about who queer people will be yeah. in a thousand years, right? Um, in <laughs> on two, spaceships almost 2, and years. on different on planets. Space, right. <laughs> um, and so like, we're, 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 um, we're saying, we're, we're, we're saying with hope, right. That we will reach a time when, uh, who you love and who you are, um, are less important than how, how you can help save the galaxy. And, um, I think about this current moment a lot because I think we're all being asked to save the galaxy right now. I think our, our our society is, is, being threatened. I think democracy is being threatened. And I think we are all being asked right now to be like Starfleet, step up to the plate. Um, What is your task and what is your responsibility um, in saving our way of life? Because I don't think that's um, hyperbole uh, given everything that's happening right now. So, um, you know, our show is very much uh, about the future, but it's also very much about this current moment, this current season that we're about to premiere is really about the last two years that we've lived through, about the uncertainty of of this moment in time and how we've had to rely on each other to get through it. Um, So um, it's it's, it's been hard and good work with people that I sincerely love and appreciate um, but it's also feels, um, I feel like we have a responsibility to speak to the moment and I think we're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I feel so inspired by that show and it's, <laughs> you know, when you think of all the different iterations of Star Trek and, and then the, the way that this new iteration of Star Trek has like stepped up to the plate and said, let's just, you know, because... I feel like Star Trek has oftentimes pushed those envelopes and like, you know, presented those questions to its viewers, you know, the idea of being so far in the future and the human race has had to become so much more enlightened. And then it's, you know, like I'm speaking, of course, of Voyager, my favorite iteration before Discovery, but, you know, it was constantly like, reviewing like human history and kind of like calling out its mistakes and and showing what they had to overcome to be able to like travel through space and become what we know Star Trek to be and so it's very interesting that the show has you know like 
risen like a phoenix from the ashes so many times throughout the decades. And every time it kind of like pushes an envelope and discovery is just like, it's stepped up to the plate and just keeps hitting home runs. And I just absolutely love it. And not just with, um, you know, sexual orientation representation, but um, gender representation and uh, spirituality, all all kinds of stuff. It's just a really remarkable show. Um, and it's so fun. Every, every time, you know, every time you're on the screen, I'm just like, that's Wilson. Oh, God, I know Wilson. Uh, <laughs> because we've crossed paths a few times. Yeah. And... <laughs> Um, the first night we met, we were just talking about this before we started recording, but the first night we met was the Glad Awards, like right you were after. Hosting. I don't think I was hosting. I just you think I performed. I, I, yeah, I, I sang performed. I, I sang my Ladies Who Lunch parody. That's but I remember after that event that night, we were all like in the hotel and it's just like, this hotel is just full of gay celebrities and drag queens and we're all partying and kikiing. And I remember you know, towards the end of the evening. I can't even remember what incited it, but you and I were in the hotel lobby, boozing, having a few laughs. (laughs) And I don't remember when we just turned to each other. And it was less than making out, but more than a peck. It was one of those, you know, like movie kisses. And (laughs) I always think about that when you come on um, Star Trek Discovery. I'm like, I shared an intimate kiss with with that performer. That was an an intense (laughs) night, though, because if you if I don't know if you remember, but that was the night that um, Cloris Leachman was on stage with. with Betty White and <laughs> Cloris went on, like Cloris was like, we only have a, a few hours for the show. And she just went on and on. And I was working, I was working at class. You know, I was a part of the cast, uh, the, the crew. Um, and uh, I had to keep the, the show going. And at one point I had to like get Cloris to like close, <laughs> close up without, without being offensive. Um, and Betty White, like on stage, trying to be like, "What is this woman doing?" So I, you know, <laughs> it was a lot of pressure for me. So those I, are the I surreal was... moments. Yes. It, it's so funny. It's those. It's those um, charity network events that are always the wildest and the most surreal memories. The next time we crossed paths was um, you and I co-emceeing the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus Honors Evening, and they were honoring Kathy Griffin. So it's like, right? Um, it's like surreal enough that you and I are co-emceeing a, a San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus event, and <laughs> you know they were treating us right. You know we were put up in the hotel, and it was there was a lovely meal that evening. And then on top of everything else, like you and I meeting backstage to introduce Kathy Griffin, and she's just. <laughs> It was just Kathy Griffin blew my freaking mind just standing yeah. in the corridor of the kitchen of this hotel's banquet hall. <laughs> and she's and she's so lovely, but you never know what's going to come out of her mouth, right? So we yeah. were, you know, part of me was like, um, what is she going to say that as hosts we're going to have to deal with afterwards? That's all I kept <laughs> yeah. thinking about. Like, am I going to have to like make a joke about something inappropriate? She was fantastic. She's always and she fantastic. In- 
she introduced herself that night as my mom, which was just the hugest honor. And we had the the funny thing that evening, and there's the there's pictures that circulate every once in a while of um, Kathy Griffin and I on the red carpet that night because our hair was obviously the same color and we were wearing the same color dress. So it looked like we had totally planned this moment together. And my favorite um, meme I saw afterward was someone swapping our two faces, which looked entirely unnatural. And, but it was just one of those really, really lovely evenings and another surreal, wonderful event. I, I, got to share with you and that's why i geek out every time you come on my tv screen well um, i geek out too when i'm here because <laughs> i think you're phenomenally talented and i love that you're doing this by the way so when oh, well, you asked i was like i'm yes i'm all in <laughs> um i want to ask um so you were Angel in the um, Broadway touring production of Rent, and now on Star Trek Discovery, your um, love interest, uh, your partner on the show is Anthony Rapp, who of yes. course is famous for his parts, the part he played in Rent, um, uh, and he was in the original Broadway cast and the film, right? Yes, and we actually were on Broadway together. At oh, the same yeah? time. I, I was, I, I did tour rent. I did, I premiered the West coast. I did the West coast. Oh, premiere okay. And okay. Um, I was supposed to tour. So here's the story. <laughs> I, I opened, I, I premiered rent on the West coast at La Jolla Playhouse. And we moved from La Jolla to the Amundsen theater in Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. while I was shooting an episode of Allie McBeal at the same time, um, <laughs> where I was playing a trans character, which I would never do today. Just, I'm, I'm letting you know, yeah. Let, lesson learned. Um, and uh, anyway, so while I was doing that, Wilson Heredia agreed to, who was the original angel of the original cast mm-hmm. of Rent, um, agreed to do the show in London. And so when he did that, they moved to me for the Los Angeles show to the New York show. And, it was, and I moved into the show mm-hmm. during Anthony Rapp's last month before he left to go to London. Um, oh, wow. And so we, we did the show together for a, a full four weeks before you left. So what was that reunion like on um, Star Trek? And do you think that helped? Because you guys have great chemistry in the show. Do you think having worked with him before led to uh, yeah. the on-screen well, magic you captured together? <laughs> well, he was, um, he was aware that I was up for the role while when I got offered it, he, he, I told him about it, but he had heard. Um, and so he was hopeful because at least we knew each other. And, um, and so he went through that whole process with me. He was really lovely and generous. And yes, I think, I think we do. I, first of all, I think we do have beautiful chemistry. And I think the reason why is because it's based on a real love for each other. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I love him. I have such respect for him. Uh, I think he is a phenomenal, phenomenal human. And I think because we've known each other for, Jesus, 25, 26 years now, um, that we could base that relationship on screen, uh, on our friendship, and multiply it to love, right? Mm-hmm. To, to extend ourselves in our performances um, to a place of, of love. And, um, and now we have this family that we've created with our, our two children, 
Um, <laughs> one of which is non-binary and the other one is trans. And there are two young people who are in love, but are also our charges. And so mm -hmm. we've created our little queer chosen family um, of Star Trek. And I think it's such a beautiful thing to, um, to bring up on a show like Star Trek because yeah. this is what we've always done as queer people, right? We've mm -hmm. always taken each other in, uh, been mentors to each other, especially our young people when we see them struggling, which these two characters were struggling, not about their, their um, gender identity or, or even their sexual orientations, uh, but just struggling as young people. And I love that we yeah. still take care of our own, right? We still, um, when we see a need yeah. within our community, we still step up. <laughs> um, so it's such a Starfleet thing to do. And it was such a perfect thing for the show to do. And they, they have made us better <laughs> and more interesting. <laughs> um, and they're just, and they're both such phenomenal actors that we just love being there with them. And, <laughs> and we have our Aunt Tig, <laughs> yeah. our Aunt Jet, you know, um, Played by by Tig Notaro, who is unreal. She's so great. So yeah, and um, I just love it because there. when you think of this, the built-in um, audience and the built-in fans for the Star Trek franchise, yeah. you know, um, there's a part of me that's just kind of like tickled by the idea of these Trekkies potentially being very challenged by how unapologetically Star Trek Discovery tells these stories. You know, nothing's skirted around. And it's also not what I really love is it's not watered down or neutered for heterosexual palatability. Right. You know, it's not... And, and so many moments where it's like new information is being offered in the show um, through a queer lens, but not in a crash course 101 introduction to trans rights kind of a way, you know, and that's what's so impactful about it is it's it's asking its audiences to have already a compulsory a compulsory knowledge of queer issues, trans issues, and not hand-holding them through, the, through it, but saying this is, this is a story that exists in the world and has existed many, many times. And guess what? Now it exists in the Star Trek universe as well. And I just think, I think it's so well done. Not to mention just the show itself is wildly entertaining. And um, Giorgio is my... <laughs> She's, I mean, she's nothing like me or how I like, you know, she present is, to the world, but I want to be her Yo, every day of my life. Michelle Yeoh <laughs> is an actual superhero. Like she's, yeah. like she's literally like a life, a real life, like superhero. Like I, she's, first, I'm not going to tell you her age, but the fact that she does what she does and that she has been doing what she does for so long and that she is the, the star that she is, not only here, but around the world, and that she is still this humble, hardworking, mm -hmm. kick-ass, brilliant actress um, who stands up for, you know, the least among us, 
and is always a voice for for every community. I just, I can't say enough about her. So we're all waiting with bated breath for the new Section 31 series, which apparently will come sometime in the next few years. So yeah, exciting. So she's still a part of the, of the universe. I'm, I'm so glad that I, you know, I, I didn't get into Star Trek until my late 20s, but I am so glad that I had like a, a love of Star Trek before this came out because I probably would have resisted watching it if I, you know, because, and, and that's another thing that it's doing is it's like welcoming queer audience members in to watch a sci-fi action show, which if you would, you know, like if you typically tell me like, you want to watch a sci-fi action show, I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, but, but there are you know, a lot, I'm, there are a lot of queer Trekkies, like a lot, like there's a whole yeah. like, group called gays in space i have such a great t-shirt but that says it i wear it all the time i love it so much um but they're a big part of the fan base um very vocal and active part of the fan base and yeah there are people obviously who are being challenged to expand their horizons and mm-hmm. um and and they have been challenged and and some people you know for their own reasons it's not for them but the thing about the Star Trek universe now is that if our show isn't for you, Strange New Worlds is about to be is is about to premiere, or you have Picard, right? Like, yeah, the universe is enormous. Um, but I do think that there's a an there's a portion of the of the Star Trek um, fan base that was challenged and has changed their minds because of these depictions, because of this story. Um, mm-hmm. I hear it all the time on the on the Twitter and the Instagram from people who send me messages for the storytelling because, you know, now I, I understand a bit more or I can relate a bit more uh, to these mm-hmm. characters in this community. So, you know, Star Trek is one of, the, one, of, one of the only American mythologies that we have. It's probably the oldest one we have, right? It's over 50 years old. Um, and its creed is, it might as well be the same as the United States, or at least as it used to be, which is, you know, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. You know, that's what yeah. a melting pot is. So it is an truly American, an epic American story. Yeah. Wow. I hope I hope you're the spokesperson for the show because you speak about it <laughs> so well. Um, I let I let I let Sonequa Martin Green, who's, who's <laughs> not only our captain on screen but off screen mm-hmm. as well. Like she's the an executive producer now too. And, you know, I take my cues from her. I just, I yeah. can't say enough about her. She is all things. It, it's really a stellar cast and just like countless amazing performances, countless amazing stories. I'm so happy I'm now into sci-fi so that I can <laughs> enjoy it fully. also mentioned um that you uh, played the character angel in party monster and you know as i was kind of thinking about how do how do we segue into party monster and talk about the film that it is and also you know like give a moment to acknowledge that the two main characters are queer characters played by straight male actors um and i actually 
as I was thinking about it, I'm like, this is actually kind of an example of a time when I'm not bothered by mm-hmm. the actors being straight, playing queer characters. Because when I'm bothered by it is when it's a straight actor playing just a general archetype, just a general stereotype or kind of just playing what, you know, the straight community thinks a queer person acts like. And what I love, yeah, queer, getting dolled up in queer face. Mm -hmm. What I actually really love about um, Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green, even when I reflect back on the film today, is that I felt like their performances you know, those characters were queer, but their performances weren't about being queer. It was about portraying these real life people. And, you know, I've never met Michael Alec, um, but I've met James St. James, the the human being James St. James many times. And every time I interact with James St. James, I just think to myself, wow, Seth Green really got your number, Missy. <laughs> like, Right. Well, James was on. James was on set. I think you know James yeah. wrote the script, and I think he did anyway, if I remember correctly. And he was very involved with the production. Um, mm-hmm. Mr. Alec uh, was a little busy at the time, um, <laughs> uh, and I'm not a fan. So, uh, and you know, I, I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but yeah. I mean, I don't. Whatever. I, I, uh, <laughs> I don't think we, I don't think we owe the the human no. being Michael Alec anything on 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 this podcast. So no, don't, but don't I, I I will say I will say this. You know, um, if that movie were made today, it would be a very different movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think the the story. Um, I think the missed opportunity there was mm-hmm. the story of Angel. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I think, you know, it would have been an interesting move. And I'm not saying this because I wanted more screen time, but I think <laughs> it's interesting to talk about um, this young man of color yeah. who was looking for um, a safe space mm-hmm. um, and wanted to find a way to fit in um, and lost his life in the process. Uh, I think when we're telling a story that in which a, a, a murder takes place, I think it's important to center the story of the victim yeah. and not of um, the murderer. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and I understand that, you know, what was attractive of that story was the outlandish place and, and era that it took place in and the, the costumes and the colorful um, anecdotes. But in the end, yeah, um, And it was really important for me, you know, and I will also say this, admit this, that um, I hadn't worked in a couple of years uh, before that movie. Uh, I had finished Party of Five in 2000, and this, I think we shot that in 2002. And I, I you know, during um, the writer's strike and after 9-11, uh, you know, the, 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 the industry kind of shut down. It was yeah. very little work available. And so... Uh, when they offered me this part, I took it, right? Because I thought, well, okay, this is an opportunity for me to grow up a bit on screen. Um, so, you know, it, 
I'm really grateful for that opportunity. I'm not, I'm not speaking out of breath. Uh, 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 I'm not, um, I'm not acknowledging my gratitude for, ha for having had work. I'm just saying that um, I wish we would have taken more of an opportunity to highlight the person we lost. Yeah. And I think so many, so many of these stories sometimes about a, a murder, especially of a murder of a person of color, uh, a queer person of color, um, sometimes the victim is diminished. Most of the time, they're diminished. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really amazing point. And I think you're absolutely right. If it was made today, it would have to be made differently and um, through a different scope. And what's funny is, you know, I talk about Party Monsters being such a formative movie for me. Um, and it was very influential on my early decisions to do drag and stuff. And that might sound like it was like from a place of reverence for those characters or for that story, but it was actually kind of my, it was my cautionary tale that I used mm. to, because when I started drag at 15, it was at a all ages queer nightclub. And then I also started, you know, working in bars and stuff. And so many people were romanticizing that film. And, you know, like I loved the costumes. I loved the soundtrack. I love, you know, so many of the lighthearted moments from it. But I saw so many people my age glamorizing and romanticizing that film. And I would often say to people, did you watch the whole film? <laughs> like, did you see what a life of drug addiction and <laughs> like yeah. selfishness will, will lead to? And so it was always kind of like my cautionary tale. And what I will say to your performance um, is that Angel breaks my heart every time, you know, and Yes, your character wasn't centered, but I think, you know, you absolutely brought stuff to the performance that, you know, it, the, it's the moment when there's a party on the truck and Michael asks Angel to shut the doors and Angel says, but if I shut the doors, I won't be in the party with you. And my heart just breaks for Angel. And it reminds me of something, an acting teacher in school told me when I was playing this tiny, tiny little part in our town, the paper boy who has mm -hmm. like one or two lines in, in the first act and then never seen again. And then at the end of the show, you just find out he died. <laughs> like, right. And it's just like, Oh, and by the way, Joe, Joe Crowell's dead. And I was like, how do I bring anything to a performance that has two lines? How do I make this feel like, you know, something to invest my time and energy into. And my teacher said, well, if, if we find out later that his, that he died and that's a turning point for the main character later, and we need to feel a sense of tragedy that that character died, then your job in whatever moments before his death is to fill him with life and to make him someone that will, that his death will stick with us and have it. You feel the loss. You feel yes, the loss. Exactly. Right. And I absolutely feel you did that with Angel in every moment. And, you know, I thank you. It was, it, you know, the thing that was most important to me about that movie was a, that moment. I'm mm -hmm. really touched that you pointed that out, but I also wanted his murder to be visceral. Yeah. I wanted, uh, and when you see that, you know, it's the one part of the movie that I think they 
well, not the one part. It's one of the parts of the movie that I thought they really did well, which was the the, the carnage of it, mm-hmm. the, the violence, the, the 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 ugliness of it, of that murder, mm-hmm. of the senselessness of it, and mm-hmm. and how I remember in the moment of playing it where it was almost like shocked that this was happening, right? Like yeah. you imagine, I, you know, I try to imagine what that's like, right? And you know, and I think he knows he's going to die, right? There's that mm-hmm. moment where he's reaching for the door mm-hmm. and he gets pulled back. Yeah. And there's a look on my face where that's like, oh, this is actually happening. Yeah. That was the most important part of the movie because I felt like, well, if we're not going to have more backstory about this person, we at least need to feel some something visceral about the moment of their death. Yeah. And, and that moment in the movie is like, you know, of course the tone shifts dramatically and then, and, and then that tone follow like carries throughout, you know, like the whole film has like, you know, until that moment it has this feeling of being at a circus, you know, like you feel like you're on the party drugs with them while you're watching it. And then it's like <laughs> to anyone out there who has ever been in a blackout, you know, I'm two and a half yes. years sober by the grace of God. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I've had, I've had a handful of blackouts in my yeah. time and, um, the thing, the thing that's horrifying of coming out of a blackout is the little glimpses of memory that you do have. And you're like, how did I go from here to here? And how did, uh, you know, how did I start my evening like this? And then it ended like this and you're trying to piece it together. And that scene plays like a blackout memory. Mm-hmm. It plays like piecing together something. And then the rest of the film you know, um, that tone carries through of that. It's like it reminds, it reminds me of, you know, and, like people who are afraid of clowns, right? It's like this thing that's supposed mm-hmm. to bring you so much joy and it's so much fun and so crazy, but if, but just one tweak to that clown mm-hmm. and it'll scare shit yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> that's what it's like for me. So, wow. I mean, you know, I have strong feelings about the movie. I just, it's an indie film. I think it's, it, I think it's, I think Randy and Fenton, got the spirit of it. I just know that there's an element of that story that still breaks my heart because I feel like Angel's story has never, has, has never really been told. And, you know, that's up to his family, I can say. Well, yeah. I mean, now all I can see is a reboot of the film and the story with Angel as the central character. And, you know, um, maybe some cameos from, from the original actors. Yes. In, in the I could film. play, you know, he had, he had an older brother who was very, um, you know, influential to him. So I could play his older brother, maybe. But a young Christian Navarro <laughs> could play him, maybe. Anyway. I... I've talked with my music partner for a long time about what if we wrote Party Monster the musical? Ah. And, you know, it, it's funny because, I mean, I've always thought, like I said, I've always thought of that film as more of a cautionary tale than, as, I mean, like there's plenty of celebration in it, but I always saw it as a cautionary tale. And, but I had not, when I brought it up and um, and we started talking about it, I wasn't even thinking about at its base 
you know, level, it is a story about a privileged white person murdering a disenfranchised queer person of color without a without any care of consequence and as, never as, takes accountability or responsibility as, for it. As if he had crushed a bug under his foot. Yeah. It's, I mean, and that's-, and that's Can I tell you something? Right now. <laughs> can I tell you something? That fucker from his <laughs> jail cell, when he saw the movie, had nothing to say except about me. Oh my God, what did he say? Oh, you know, I think, you know, it's something along the lines of, you know, like, uh, at least it gave Wilson Cruz uh, a job or something like that. It was very dismissive. It was, you know, but I found it really interesting um, that he was so threatened. By, it reeks of by, queer jealousy. <laughs> well, it reeks of somebody who was feeling what he did, right? I think he yeah. saw that movie and, and saw that, you know, I was bringing some humanity. Like, I think, mm-hmm. I, I, think I forced him to recognize some humanity in yeah. the angel. And that bothered him so much that he felt he needed to attack the person who made him do that. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you've spent a little time thinking about all of this. <laughs> well, it's been, it's been almost 20 years. It's been almost 20 years yeah. since that movie, you know? And, it, um, you know, uh, everything we've talked about, I, I think is just really fascinating to talk about. And I think... This is a really interesting time to be here on the planet where we are constantly kind of like looking back on things, you know, like there's so many movies that um, were very formative for me or, you know, important to me at the time that I saw it. And then when you do go back and watch it, you're like, if I watch it with the knowledge and understanding and the conversations we're having right now, this is a completely different movie than it used to be. And... I've got, I got my, I got a, a membership to the Criterion channel. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I love old movies. I cannot watch anything before 1970 without, yeah, without cringing. And even the 70s, let's be honest. But I'm just saying, like, the way that people of color or anyone within the margins is depicted when you watch that now, it's, you realize how brainwashed we've been. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, one of my favorite films, because it's, you know, it's fucking Betty Davis and Joan Crawford in a hag, a hagsploitation film. Yeah. But, you know, one thing that n- doesn't often get talked about as we're like, you know, <laughs> shouting lines from the film is that, Betty Davis's character, Jane, murders a person of color. And then, I mean, she does lose her mind. I mean, yes. it does destroy her. But it's also like, you know, there's ve- it, there's not any immediate consequence for her. It takes forever for the police to get involved. And then in the end, we're kind of left like, oh, she'll probably end up in an insane asylum, you know. But there's not a lot of time spent on the fact that this white woman of privilege murdered a working class person of color 
and then just tries to go on with her life. <laughs> and yeah. that's, you're absolutely right. It's just everywhere in, in cinema and, and, and then plenty of places in cinema that aren't from before the seventies, plenty of things, you and, know, and, and, the, it's, and, and the reason why, why it happens is because you have a lack of diversity behind the camera because mm-hmm. who we allowed and continue to allow tell most of the stories that we are told. So when you're, when, when, when only one group of people gets to um, dictate the narrative, you're only mm-hmm. gonna get a one dimensional at best view of what actually happened, you know? But, the, but there's one thing to say that about our culture and about film and television or books, it's a whole other thing when that's happening inside of our history books and in our classrooms, yeah. which is yeah. what's happening now, right? So now people, now you can't even teach people about what actually happened, right? Like the civil yeah. rights movement, you know, is a, a, talking about the civil rights movement now is critical race theory, as if critical race theory is a bad, bad word. Yeah. It's not a bad and- word. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way to think about our, what has happened to us. Um, in a in a more fuller way, um, to not center the stories of privileged Anglo people that only make up a, a percent, you know, a, a, yes, the majority for most of the, our history, but not the entirety of our of our country, right? Of, of who we are. So, uh, I, I, I'm I'm relieved in some ways that we are at least acknowledging that there has been that that, that Culture has made errors, but I'm also alarmed that we are entering a time when people are dictating how to talk about our history and what what this next generation is going to grow up believing about who we are and what has happened. So they won't learn the lessons so not to repeat them. Yeah, and hearing you talk about, you know, hearing that segue from talking about um, film and TV and then into what we're dealing with people trying to rewrite history or rewrite our perception of history or I mean, it's our even, perception of history. It's even happening. It's even happening. Not even, I'm not, you don't have to point to the 1960s. We could just talk about January 6th. They, yeah. are, at, they are actively trying to rewrite the history of something that happened less than a year ago, only a few yeah. months ago. It's happening right in front of our eyes. Yeah. And that's how conditioning and brainwashing works is that, you know, it's, it's the cultural sentiment that dictates the art that's get gets made. And then people shy away from art that challenges um, that cultural mindset, because who's going to watch it if it challenges them too much. So then the, the art and the cinema and the media, then trains young people to grow up thinking that's how things are done and that's how it goes and that's the way you have to do it. And then those people end up um, in their positions of power and then regurgitate it all back out. And it just keeps going like that. It's a danger of propaganda. It's literally propaganda. Yeah. Well, (laughs) but... 
But amongst all of that, you've got Wilson Cruz. <laughs> but I, I will say this, you know, the, 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 the only way we're going to get out of that, the only way we're going to write this shit is if people become vocal and they get active and they, they don't allow it to happen. I think there's an, and what, what I'm scared about is that we have been, um, we're, ex, we're exhausted by the last four years. And I, I, there's a part of me that completely understands people just turning off the news right now because of the, what they've endured for four years. Right? But mm-hmm. now is where we actually need people to be pay more attention because this next election in 2022 and the one in 2024, um, if we get those wrong, we're right back where we were. And if not a worse place, because yeah. if that thing becomes president again, he won't have to worry about getting reelected. Yeah. He'll do whatever the hell he wants. Yeah. And he'll cast doubt on every single thing. I'm sorry. I get, no, I get, no, you're, I, I, I love talking about it with you and, and <laughs> it's just, um, so nice to get to talk about it so openly, you know, I was, like I it's my podcast. This. So let's yeah. talk about what's wrong with our fucking country well, right now. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm, I'll tell you what I'm really concerned about. What the thing I'm most concerned about, and I and I I'm gonna just say it, is that um there are seeds of doubt that have already been uh planted about our elections. Uh, for Republicans, for that, mm. for the right. But if we don't secure our elections for 2022 and 2024, uh, and these laws that are happening in Texas and other states um, mm. are allowed to, to remain, the left is going to start doubting mm-hmm. the reliability of our elections. Yeah, And so then when we are come to a place where neither side believes the safety and reality of our elections where do we go from there yeah and how do we save that the youth witnessing all of this i mean like i just i i think about young people who aren't able to vote but who are reading all the stories and seeing everything as it unfolds and and then also like where do you go for unbiased opinions where do you go for the truth where do you go to find out what's actually happening without some skewed version of it or some like yeah you know some version of the story that has an angle to get you thinking one way or the other it's like it's very dis- disheartening but i think the the counter to that is at the same time you know we are at this time where people are shouting from every avenue that they can like let's stop pretending that the truth we've been told is the actual truth and let's stop pretending like what we were raised to believe is somehow inherently right just because we were raised to believe it and to bring it back to you my guest on this podcast is Sorry. no i no i'm just i just want to reiterate that you are someone who just in you being you and following your 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 career and following your path in life and you know from 19 years old being um out of the closet at a time where that was exponentially more difficult than it is today and then you know continuing to play 
unapologetically queer roles throughout your whole career and being a person of color and not apologizing for being queer or a person of color. I mean, you're doing advocacy work just in doing you. And then on top of that, you do a shit ton of advocacy work. <laughs> um, what? I, don't, I, I, actually don't, I actually don't delineate a difference between those two mm-hmm. things. I feel like absolutely. Uh, I feel like my work is my advocacy, and yeah. uh, my when I'm when I even my advocacy that's not acting is is still work to me. Um, but like you know, you said earlier that uh, I I play predominantly. Uh, queer roles, but I play only queer roles. Yeah, right. And uh, and the people are always asking, "Well, don't you want to play someone straight?" No, I sh- sure if it happens, and that's great. But like that, I feel like when I am happiest and when I feel most fulfilled is when I can use what I believe are God given talents to further the conversation about mm-hmm. our about who we are, because I think that. I think we live in revolutionary times and I am a soldier in the revolution and I'm using what I got yeah. to, to further our cause. And what I do is tell our stories. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of when I was young and was being warned about being as, you know, flagrantly queer as I've always been. And even, you know, I came out at like, 13 or 14. So it's not even like I I was going to auditions pretending to be a straight person, but I was constantly warned, you know, like kind of keep that part to yourself. You don't want to be pigeonholed. And that's what I was always told is you don't want to be pigeonholed so that you're only playing queer characters or drag roles. And it's like, but who's telling Bruce Willis that he doesn't want to be pigeonholed in like action, you know, like no one's telling straight actors, you don't want to be pigeonholed as straight. Right. (laughs) <laughs> my thing with my thing with that argument about being pigeonholed as queer is that that is based on an assumption that all queer people are the same. Yeah. Yeah. Why can't I have a career of a variety of queer people in the mm-hmm. world that are nothing like each other? I don't think Ricky Vasquez is anything like Dr. Culver. I mean, yes, their their ages are different, but uh, you know, or, or, or for instance, I played a, a nurse on a series with Octavia Spencer called uh, Red Band Society. That nurse is also a medical worker. I would never play Dr. Culver the way I played Kenji. Mm-hmm. You know, Kenji was a very different energy, a very different story to tell, a different kind of queer person. That's not Dr. Culver. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, that, I use that as an example that there, there are an infinite amount of queer characters to play in the universe, in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just like there are an infinite amount of straight characters. So Absolutely. for people to say you're pigeonholed by playing queer characters just makes an assumption that well, there's only one, play to, one way to play a queer person. That's yeah. bullshit. That is so well said. And I will correct one thing um, you said, though. There is one thing that um, Ricky Vasquez and Dr. Kolber have in common. They're both sexy motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Wilson, you have been such a wonderful guest. Um, it's it's just been so lovely getting to peek inside your mind and hear you talk on these issues and and also get me thinking about um thinking about the movie Party Monster differently. <laughs> you know, like and it's just so amazing because like a sentence into our conversation about Party Monster, I was like, oh damn. <laughs> well, I, will, I will also say this because I feel like I didn't need to shit on the movie. I, I, don't. I don't think I, you shit I, on I the think, movie at all. I think you shit no. on, uh, not even shit. What you did was you, you shed light on the fact that like, if we look at certain things with the education, you know, like we already said, we have now. We, yeah. we, we have a new understanding of things and it's probably something you recognize then but we didn't have we weren't having this big conversation about it absolutely and to bring it up you know to bring up queer issues um poc issues um uh, all of the stuff we've talked about to bring it up but- like 15 20 years ago would have gotten you know could have gotten you blacklisted could For have sure. gotten you like completely kicked out of hollywood altogether i would have looked uh, uh, you know ungrateful but i will say this is what i was going to say about the movie that movie was really hard to make and they made it on two dollars we did it <laughs> i think in i think we made the whole movie in two weeks and all of those costumes existed for about as long as it took to film the scenes that we used them for, because mm-hmm. they literally sometimes fell apart as we wore them, because <laughs> they were they were built on us. It was a very difficult uh, movie to make. So well, sounds I like great drag respect to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, and for sure. you know, and we got to see Macaulay Culkin's butt. So we'll take yeah. we'll take we'll take what victories we can. <laughs> um. But I want to. I want to <laughs> thank you, and I want to um, now ask you my compulsory questions. Oh, um, we'll we'll take another hard left turn in our <laughs> conversational Ooh. tone, and now you just tell me, Wilson, who's your celebrity crush today? Who's my celebrity crush today? Do I have one? Uh, you know, my, you know, my go-to is Idris. It's always Idris. <laughs> I just go straight to them. When all else fails, but I can't think of anyone else. It's Idris or Joe Man- Manganiello. <laughs> I'm going to say my celebrity crush today is definitely you because I did feel myself get flush when I was remembering that intimate kiss in that hotel lobby. But I also will shout out to uh, <laughs> this is this is who I am as a person. I recently became obsessed with this um, TikToker just because I think he's so damn cute. But then I watched every and I don't think his content's geared towards me. You know, <laughs> it's very like it's very like, oh, this is like family friendly, wholesome content. Not normally what I consume. But I've watched every oh. one of his TikTok videos I, just because I, I think he's cute. About, if we're talking about like social media stars, I do <laughs> have a crush on a Brazilian actor that I'm kind of obsessed with. But because I think his name is, I forget his last name, but his first name is Bernardo. Of course it is. <laughs> uh, but he's on, he's like on a, on a Brazilian soap. I forgot his last name already. But anyway, ah. Um, my, so I get my, it. 
<laughs> my person's name is Pete Montzingo, and he's the oh. um, one average-sized person in his family, and everyone else in his family are little people, and that's like 90% of his content is just about being tall in a family of little people. <laughs> wow. But my oh. favorite thing that he does is he um, uses a trombone and sa- makes sound effects for his mother, just like walking around the house doing chores and stuff, and will like sound effect his, or play a soundtrack of her walking around the house. That, to me, is the best content. But also, I'm just watching it because he's cute. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is who I was talking about. Can you see okay, that? Yes. Yes. His name is Bernardo Velasco. And I'm sure he's very straight, so it doesn't matter. But he's <laughs> I'm not the um, one I'm not one bit surprised that that's your social media crush. <laughs> what were we talking and, about? Now you're just staring <laughs> at him. Okay, next question. Are you spiritual? Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> I am spiritual. I'm not, I'm not a member of a, of a religion, but mm-hmm. I believe that I don't know everything. You, you couldn't have said it any better. That's exact. I do not prescribe to any organized religion. I have my own thoughts and theories, but over everything else, I know that I probably know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, like how much can we possibly know? You know, like yeah. every hundred years or so, we learn something else that it's like, oh, how did we not realize that this right. whole time? Right. <laughs> I I believe there is a mystery to life that mm-hmm. we are not at liberty to know, right? Yeah. And if we knew, we wouldn't be able to live our lives probably in the way that we do. But I I definitely come from this the church of I don't know everything and I'm okay with that. No spoilers for us. Um, (laughs) My final question for you is what is your go-to karaoke song? On the wings of love. (laughs) That's it. That's my, that's my go-to. Have you ever, has anyone ever like asked you to do today for you, tomorrow for me at karaoke? Yes. But can I tell you, it's like the worst song to do at karaoke. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's mostly dance break. It's mostly spoken yes. word. <laughs> right, or they'll ask you to sing like Seasons of Love. But Seasons mm-hmm. of Love is a is a group song, right? Like it doesn't mm-hmm. sound, it doesn't really sound right if you sing it by yourself. I or don't like know if a- I, yeah, no, it, it doesn't sound good as a solo. <laughs> um, I don't know if I told you this, but I played Angel myself in the Seattle production of Rent. I don't think you um, told me that. At, at the uh, Fifth Avenue Theater, which mm. is a, you know, it's a local theater, but previews a lot of things that end up going to Broadway. And so, you know, my before Drag Race, my plan was to get in on the ground floor on a new musical being worked out in Seattle. And then they'd like me so much that they take me when they take the show to Broadway, which has happened right. for many Seattle it, actors. It has. Um, so I actually got back from filming Drag Race and went straight into rehearsals for Rent, playing the whitest, gingerest angel that has ever happened. It's not true, actually. Um, the oh, very, yeah? I don't know. I actually don't remember, and I feel terrible about this, but the, the very first person to play the role in one of mm-hmm. the very first workshops, or the first workshop, was a white guy. And, um, oh, God. His brain just fell out of my face. I feel really terrible, but he was part of the original cast and I can see him right now. And he was, 
the understudy for the entire run of the Broadway mm-hmm. uh, production. Why is it escaping me? Anyway, um, and he was white as well. So, yeah. Yeah. But, and, but was and he I whiter think, and more ginger than... <laughs> no, no, that's true. No, that's true. But I think I think Michael Greif ended up liking uh, more Asian... Um, angels towards the end i saw i saw that he was like oh maybe which made a lot of sense i was just going to ask were all was it a prerequisite that all the actors playing angel were named wilson in the beginning um um, i forgot the best ones oh i i brought this up because um when i played angel you know we were very much trying to the, the the aim that the director had for this production of rent was to tell uh uh, tell the story like a 90s period piece, but find what things are still, you know, universal okay. and yeah, what things are very relevant today. And, but I remember people would come up to me and all they wanted to talk about is why didn't you jump on the table? Did you jump on the table? You didn't jump on the table. How can you play angel and not jump on the table? And I was like, <sighs> I did something else. I did the drop splits, you know, I yeah. like, but now I have to ask, did you have to jump on the table? <laughs> so, oh no, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I, I, I did feel pressure to jump <laughs> onto the table, uh, but I gave up the pressure to jump off of the table because um, that had traction written all over it. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> I tried it a couple of times in those heels and all I felt was electricity going up my spine yeah. as I landed. So I actually really loved what I ended up doing, which was this really beautiful um, grand jeté off of the table mm-hmm. uh, into um, a sh- to uh, Sinead t- uh, turns into a bat ma. I mean, that's better oh. than a, a, a jump off of the table. So, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I did feel pressure to do it, to jump onto the table, but I thought it worked and it did wonders for my ass. (laughs) That it did, Wilson. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I remember our choreographer was like, let's throw out everything we know about um, today for you and tomorrow for me and, and, and start with just what you do and what, and so I would, I thought that was really cool. And it was the most physically active to date that I've ever been in a show. Cause you know, playing Moritz and spring awakening, he doesn't move around that much. No, you know? that's a great part. That's <laughs> I do. Um, <laughs> I did, um, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the bitch of living and, uh, and then I'm, you know, then I'm dead for act two. I play right. a lot of characters who die. In Listen, act two. <laughs> look who you're talking to. Yeah, exactly. Thank you people, so much for people being People love me. to see people love to see me die. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying it for years for myself. People love it when I I and I love it cuz you get to have the dressing room to yourself for like an hour while everyone else is on yes. stage coming to their own deaths, you know. <laughs> I know. I would I would come out for that angel bow and mm-hmm. every, they all looked wrecked like Mimi had just died and come back to life and just <laughs> Eyeliner streaks all over her face and like garbage in her hair. And you I had would come time out to touch up, <laughs> glowing. <laughs> Bitch had her makeup done. <laughs> Thank you so much for being my guest today, Wilson. I can't wait till our um, paths cross again yes. for whatever charity function we might be emceeing together in the future, 
or Same. you know just putting it out into the universe when i finally make my star trek discovery cameo hey um, that so, could happen you know i should i mean obviously i'd be some kind of like space cantina um barmaid oh. you know some well you know owner and <laughs> I'm, I'm not i'm not gonna spoil it for you but there is something like something like that would be possible on our ship now that's all i'm gonna say Oh, okay. Okay. I'm so excited. Thank you once more, Wilson Cruz. And thank you all so much for listening to Hijinx here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday. So make sure to search for Hijinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. Where can they follow you, Wilson? At WCruise73 on Twitter and Instagram. Perfect. And I'll see you all next Wednesday for some more hijinks. Forever. To listen to hijinks ad-free and one day early, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. Make sure to follow at Forever Dog Team and at Mom Podcasts on social and rate and review Hijinx five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hijinx is produced by Forever Dog and Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, produced by Big Dipper, editing and sound design by Will Pitts. Executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.